Since the early Victorian era, spiritualists and followers of the paranormal have tried to classify the supposed inhabitants from the world of the supernatural. They're either servants of God and Satan, angels and demons. There are ghosts and phantoms, the souls of those who have passed over but are still trapped here on earth for whatever reason. There are ancient elementals and spirit animals. Then there are poltergeists. Poltergeist activity is very similar to an ordinary, everyday haunting. There are unexplained noises, the sudden movement of inanimate objects. Those reporting poltergeist activity will describe other inexplainable occurrences, such as disembodied knocking, doors opening and closing on their own, and even people being pinched or slapped by unseen hands. Ghosts are seen in various places, such as theatres, public houses and churchyards whereas poltergeist activity is nearly always found in a domestic setting. Poltergeists also seem to be motivated by a mischievous intent, and most activity seems to revolve around a teenage girl, although as we will see, this is not always the case. So, now it's time to hit those lights, sit back, and enjoy five poltergeist horror stories. The Antique Bed during the month of September 1998, the Cobb family found a single oak bed propped up in the corner at an auction house. Al and Lilla Cobb were there with their 14-year-old twin boys, Jason and Lee, looking for bargains to sell on. It was actually Jason who spotted and fell in love with the bed. He emulated his father's passion for antiques and wanted to keep the bed, which was late Victorian, and had a finely carved headboard and moulding on the feet. The family lived in the suburbs of the Isle of Hope in Savannah, Georgia. Their bid for the bed was successful. Al went to pick it up the following day, and it was placed in Jason's bedroom, where he was thrilled to find it on his return from school. That night, Jason had just turned out the light and got into bed when he felt a strange sensation on the back of his neck. It was as if someone or something was breathing on it. He quickly turned on the bedside lamp, but found himself alone in the room. Scared but determined to see if there was anything there, he peered under the bed, only to find that completely empty too. A few nights later, he felt the same sensation, but also sensed something leaning on the pillow at the side of his head. Quickly turning on the light, he found his grandparents' photograph, lying face down on his bedside table. Placing it upright, he was startled the following morning, when he again found the photograph face down. During the next few weeks, Jason experienced a series of peculiar events. He eventually told his mother about the occurrences, and together they decided to carry out an experiment. With Al and Lee both out of the house, they placed the photograph of Jason's grandmother upright on the bedside table, and then waited outside of the bedroom door to see what would happen. They heard a scraping noise, and upon entering the room, found the photo once again face down. But this time on picking it up, they saw that the front of it was smashed, Later, on returning to his bedroom, Jason found a pile of toys lying in the center of his bed. He shouted for his parents to come and see, and Al decided that they would try to communicate with whatever it was that was causing the incidents. That night, the family placed a piece of paper and a pencil at the bottom of the bed and waited while Jason slept in Lee's room. At 1.30 in the morning, the family went to check the paper and found a message written in a child's handwriting. It said Danny, age 7. Later they found another message, which read, Mum sick in bed, died 1899, love toys. Alarmed, the family went off back to bed. Al and Leela were shortly awakened by the frightening screams of both Jason and Lee, 
and a hammering sound coming from Jason's room. On entering, they found it completely trashed. For several weeks, the cops communicated with the ghost of Danny, who demanded that no one should sleep in his bed. One day, Jason defied this order and laid down on it. There was a huge crash where a terracotta wall tile flew off the wall and shattered around the bed. Once Al and Leela decided to take the bed apart and sell it, there began a spat of violent activity. Curtains were pulled down, a lamp was smashed, and clothes were torn from their hangers. Al took the bed and put it up for auction, but the activity at the cop's house continued. Jason saw the ghost of a mountaineering man dressed in 19th century clothing. This was followed by a violent incident when Jason was found by his father, barely conscious on the living room floor, after being hit by flying furniture. The house was in ruins. Over the coming months, the family were plagued by a number of other ghosts as well as Danny and the mountaineer. One was a Victorian lady, another a little girl named Grace, who was about Danny's age. In one final incident, Jason found two knives impaling a note to the ceiling of his parents' bedroom. The note simply said, leave. And then, as suddenly as it had started, the activity stopped. The Cinderstone Mystery Cinderstone is a tiny village in Norfolk on the east coast of England. It boasts a ghostly highwayman who has been seen on several occasions galloping towards the village green. But it's the haunting of the parsonage that became famous where an account was published in the Norfolk Chronicle on the 1st of June 1833. It told the story of how six weeks before some unexplainable events began at the parsonage after Reverend John Stewart moved in with his family. The house was near to the church and next to the graveyard. It seemed that every morning at about 2am, a violent knocking began and continued until dawn. Sometimes the noise came from above, in the ceiling. At other times it came from inside the walls or even from underneath their feet. There was also a strange moaning sound that seemed to emanate from one of the beds. It was as though some poor soul was in torment. The moan became a shriek and then a scream. There were noises of items such as pots or glassware being smashed or metal containers being clashed together. One servant had already left in fear for her life and others were threatening to follow. The house had been searched from top to bottom and nothing had been found and all of the doors and windows were carefully closed and fastened. The Stewart family weren't the only ones to experience the phenomenon. Visitors to the home and neighbours all heard the noises. To try to get to the bottom of the problem, Reverend Stewart invited a group of six people to the parsonage to stay awake with him at an all-night vigil. Four of those present were also reverends from other parishes. The noises were even louder than usual, and there were scratching noises, as though some sort of wild beast was clawing at the inside of the walls. There was a hammering noise so loud that the vibrations could be felt by everyone throughout the room. Sometimes it was as though the sounds were coming from mid-air. The visitors all left afraid and confused. The local villagers believed that the parsonage was haunted by the ghost of a former cleric. Reverend Mantle had died there 27 years earlier. He had brought the church into disrepute with his wickedness. It seemed that Mantle was led astray by the immoral antics of the gentlemen farmers in the area. One of the farmers even seduced Mrs. Mantle and led the curate into the vilest debaucheries. Mantle drank so much that he had to be held upright at funerals so that he wouldn't fall into the grave on top of the coffin. His vault was inside the church, and after his death, strange noises began to be heard at the parsonage. However, Elizabeth Goff, 
came forward and testified that she had been in Reverend Mantle's employee when he moved to the parsonage and found two of the bedrooms nailed shut. She also remembered the parson's sister being absolutely terrified of something that she had seen in one of the bedrooms. Other local residents came forward who had also experienced ghostly happenings at the house, going back to at least 45 years. Reverend Stewart began his own research and discovered that a strange phenomena had been recorded at the parsonage since 1797. The Battersea Poltergeist It began in the autumn of 1956. Shirley Hitchkins went into a bathroom at number 63 Wycliffe Road, Battersea, and found a silver key on her pillow. Shirley asked her parents why they had left it there, and what the key was for, but they knew nothing about it. Her father Wally placed it on the kitchen table. The next day, it mysteriously reappeared on Shirley's pillow again. Then the tapping and knocking began, emanating from the walls, ceilings, and floors. Some of the noises were so loud that they could be heard by the neighbours. Shirley lived at the semi-detached rented house with her father, disabled mother Kitty, adopted older brother, and grandmother Ethel. Other objects began to disappear and reappear elsewhere, and the lights would turn off and on. The banging was so loud that the house would shake with the force. After a few weeks, pots and pans began to fly around the house. They would fly directly at family members, sometimes hovering before falling to the floor other times banging into the walls. One night, Shirley awoke screaming because the sheets were being yanked off her bed. Her father and brother John ran to her bedroom to find Shirley rigid and levitating six inches into the air. It seemed that Shirley was definitely the focus of the phenomena. When metallic sounds were heard above her bed and the poltergeist activity followed her. When things began to go missing at the department store where she worked, Shirley was fired. Spontaneous fires began to break out around the house, strange writings were seen on the walls, and phantom letters were written addressed to Shirley. The respected ghost hunter, Carol Chippett, went to Battersea to investigate. Chippett had spent time with Canon Doyle and Alistair Crowley in his quest to understand the supernatural. He spent hours at the house recording the case. A seance was held by spiritualist Harry Hanks in the hope to get rid of the ghost who the family had nicknamed Donald. This appeared to work, and all activity ceased, except for the phantom letters for a time, but neighbours reported noises coming from the property 12 years later, even after Shirley had moved away. Number 63 Wycliffe Road was demolished in the 1970s. Willington Mill In 1845, Joseph Proctor and his family moved into the mill house in the Northumberland village of Willington. The Proctors were a devout Quaker family and highly respected in the area. Joseph was thought of as a highly intelligent man who was kind to both his family and employees. The noises began one night in January. The nanny heard heavy footsteps in the room above when she was putting the children to sleep in the nursery. The room was unused by the family and the noises went on night after night and they grew louder and louder. Servants would regularly burst into the room to try and catch the culprit but there was never anyone there. Flour was sprinkled over the floor to try and discover any footprints, but none were found. One morning, whilst the family were joining together for prayers, heavy footsteps were heard going down the stairs, past the parlour and along the hall to the front door. They even heard the bar being withdrawn, the two bolts being turned back and the latch being turned. Proctor hurried out into the hall, closely followed by his wife. No one was there, but the front door was wide open, 
and the footsteps could still be heard crunching down the garden path. Mrs. Proctor fainted. Servants started to leave the Proctor household, and word soon got about about the paranormal activity. Only one servant loyally refused to leave, a girl named Mary Young, who had moved to Wington with her family from North Shields. On Whit Monday, or Pentecost Monday, Mary was washing dishes in the kitchen when she heard the footsteps again. Looking up, she saw a woman wearing a lilac-coloured dress walk to the end of the passage and up the stairs. It was after this that the strange occurrences grew worse. It seemed that every day doors were opening and slamming shut on their own. There was knocking and thumping all over the house. People would hear heavy breathing behind them and the rustling sound of women's silk skirts. And sometimes they heard the light, quick steps of a child on the stairs. Furniture was not only heard being moved about, but also seen. When two of Mrs. Proctor's sisters came to visit, they were rudely awakened when the four-poster bed they were both sleeping in was lifted off the ground. The curtains around the bed were pulled up and down several times by unseen hands. Afraid for their lives, the ladies thought that there was a thief and screamed for help. When the room was searched, no one was there. On another night, the bed began to shake violently, and then a blue, misty figure drifted out of the wall and proceeded to float over the sisters before lying horizontally above them. Both women saw the apparition quite clearly and were frozen in fear. The spectre then floated away and passed through the wall. Refusing to sleep in the room for one more night, the ladies took lodgings with the mill foreman, Thomas Mann, and his wife. The haunting seemed to concentrate on the blue room of the house, so Mr. Proctor asked a supernatural investigator named Edward Drury to spend the night there. He took a friend with him who eventually fell asleep in the chair. At ten minutes to one, Drury noticed that the closet door had opened on its own. He then saw a female figure dressed in a grey gown. Her head was tilted forward and she held one hand to her chest as though she was in pain. She began to move towards his bed, so Drury made a grab for her. He awoke three hours later after being carried downstairs in a terrified state. He was found screaming, There she is, keep her off. For God's sake, keep her off. Other apparitions were seen in the house, as well as spirit animals. One day, the proctor's youngest daughter told Mary Young, There's a lady sitting on the bed in Mama's room. She has eye holes, but no eyes. Another saw the same eyeless woman come out of the wall. In 1847, Joseph Proctor could take no more, and he moved his family away to another part of Northumberland. The Proctors were never troubled by the supernatural again, and Willington Mill House was later divided into two houses and deteriorated into a slum. Bridgeport, Connecticut Jerry and Laura Goodin moved into their home on Lindley Street, Bridgeport in 1960, their son had been born with cerebral palsy, and he sadly died in September of 1967. A year later, they decided to adopt Marcia, a young First Nations Canadian girl, and she came to live with them at their small home in Lindley Street. Almost immediately, strange events began to happen when items would appear to move around the home. While Marcia was sitting on the sofa with her friend Rosemary, it began to shake and lift off the floor. On another occasion, Marcia was found rocking back and forth and speaking in a strange language. She said she was talking to her grandfather, who was a respected chief on the reservation, before his death. It seemed that he was unhappy that Marcia had been adopted. Perhaps this was the catalyst for the horror that came later. In 1971, the banging noises began. Jerry said it was like the house was being stoned. 
After putting up with the noise for a whole year, in 1972, the Goodings contacted the police. They thought that the sounds might be local kids playing a prank, or maybe connected to the construction of the nearby hospital extension at St. Vincent's. The sound occurred at all hours, both night and day, and seemed to follow a pattern. Their neighbor, John Holsworth, was a police officer, and he noted that the family wasn't frightened, just annoyed. He suggested they tape the strange banging noises, which they did, and although they captured the sounds moving around the home, they were unable to find out the source. Neither the police nor the fire departments could find any reason for the disturbances. In November of 1974, activity reached a peak. A window shattered from the inside in an empty room, curtains and blinds were torn down, and the knocking continued to grow louder and louder. On returning from a trip, Jerry found Marcia's TV unplugged and lying face down in the center of her bed. Dishes rose out of the sink and flew around the kitchen before smashing onto the floor. A set of knives lifted out of the block and flew at Jerry across the room. Luckily he ducked and was not injured. Dresses were moved, shells were ripped from the walls. The whole house was like a war zone. Researchers from the Psychic Foundation were called in, and although they witnessed things that could not be explained, at one point, Marcia was caught trying to move a TV with her foot. The police issued a statement that the whole thing was a hoax. However, the activity continued on until 1975. Jerry and Laura Gooden always insisted that Marcia could not have been responsible for most of the strange events, as did many of the police officers who witnessed them. Unable to sell the property, the Goodings remained there until their deaths in the 90s. Marcia died in Ohio in 2015. She was 51. The events at Lindsay Street are still disputed to this day. What do you make of that story? So, that's five scary poltergeist horror stories and real-life encounters. We'd love to know if you've ever had your own poltergeist encounter, and if so, leave a comment down below. Thanks for watching, and as always, we'll see you right back here tomorrow for another spooky video.